Where were you on 9-11-2001? If you are old enough to remember, turn to a neighbor and quickly tell them where you were on that day. If you weren't yet alive or are too young to remember much, what have you heard others around you say about that day? Go ahead, even online folks, share with someone beside you or talk quietly to your imaginary friend. I was in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. I was at a couple day meeting with several of the men I then supervised in our work with college students with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We rented this big old house not far from Dollywood. I wanted so much to try on her wigs. Well, that morning, right after breakfast, Bruce said, Kathy called, turn on the TV. And I said, does Kathy joke around like this? And Bruce said, no. So we began to watch the news and we heard the anchor people all trying to make sense of what was unfolding. After checking in with family and friends, we checked in with our staff teams to learn how they were coping with this cataclysmic event. The TV was going nonstop. Brilliant leader and manager that I am, I realized that the meeting was over. We all needed to head home to be with our families and then figure out the next steps as the events of the day unfolded. The only problem was there were no flights to be had. When the American airspace suddenly closed because of the attacks, all flights were rerouted to the nearest airports. 238 flights were diverted to Canada. A Lufthansa pilot announced to his passengers, airspace in New York is closed. America is under attack. 38 jets suddenly landed in Gander, Newfoundland in eastern Canada stranding some 7,000 passengers for up to five days in a town with six traffic lights and only 500 hotel rooms. Gander exists largely because it was a crucial transatlantic refueling stop long before long-range jets could pass over them. On 9-11, the plane people, as the stranded passengers were nicknamed by the locals who called themselves Ganderites, were more numerous than all the people who lived in Gander. Elementary schools were converted into makeshift dorms. Volunteers from the Salvation Army and the Red Cross made lunches. The hockey rink became a walk-in refrigerator. The plain people were from 95 different countries. They needed kosher meals. Muslims needed a place to pray. Local vets even took care of animals in the plane's cargo holds, which included two chimps who were heading to the Columbus Zoo in Ohio. They could have responded to this invasion of unexpected guests suspiciously. They could have focused on the inconvenience or the cost of making endless casseroles or covering the cost of people's phone calls to distant places, but they didn't. This is just who we are, said a lumberjack-looking guy as the plain people thanked him for their dinner. The Ganderites gathered the stranded passengers in their arms and loved them. No questions asked. By day two of this crisis, the mayor of Gander initiated maroon passengers as honorary Newfoundlanders with a ritual that involved yellow raincoats, eating hard bread and pickled bologna, kissing a cod on the lips, and drinking the local rum called Screech. Mayor Elliott said, We started off with 7,000 strangers, but we finished with 7,000 family members. A Broadway musical, Come From Away, recalls these days. A few books were written about these events. 
and the people of Gander, Newfoundland, and Labrador offered baked goods, meals, keys to their homes. Strangers took showers in their bathrooms. They offered generous, abundant hospitality to the plain people. And the world, thanks in part to the musical, will never forget such an outpouring of kindness, welcome, and genuine hospitality. Well, this month, Pastor Brian has been helping us think about the with other aspects of disciple-making. Some parts of the disciple-making journey happen internally, like prayer, scripture study, silence, and reflection. Other parts of the disciple-making journey can't be done alone. You must be in relationship with others, you know, a with others life. So today, we'll explore what it means to go from insecurity and privacy to hospitality, from stranger to friend, complete with all the risks and rewards that come with practicing hospitality. As we've been looking at some of the one another commands in the Bible, there are four places in the New Testament where the word translated hospitality can be found. There are many, many other texts that illustrate hospitality in action. It's one of the themes woven in the Old Testament and New. It's an important distinguishing characteristic of the early church that made it function like, like an irresistible magnet to outsiders. In fact, according to Timothy and Silas, being hospitable or welcoming and, or loving strangers and people new to you is actually one of the requirements of leadership in the church. Hospitality seen and practiced personally and in our church points people to Jesus, who himself so ably, so ably was both host and guest in his interactions with people. So buckle up. We're going to start by defining what hospitality means in and outside of the Bible. Then we'll take a quick overview of some places where we see examples of hospitality in the scriptures. And we'll see that we welcome because God first welcomed us. And because of this, hospitality becomes a fundamental, tangible, and winsome expression of the gospel. Then, taking these biblical principles, we're going to apply them to our daily lives as individuals and as a community of Christians. One of the key Greek words for hospitality is philoxenia. Philoxenia. Philo means love or affection for people who are connected by kinship or faith. Xenia means stranger. So hospitality is showing love to strangers. The English word we use for hospitality comes from the Latin terms hospitalis or hospitalitas and refers to the relationship between guest and host. Its root word is hospice, meaning host, guest, stranger, or visitor. Hospitality is the act of welcoming strangers and guests usually without reward, with kind and generous liberality. Gospel hospitality reflects the nature of our God who welcomes and receives us with this generosity. A friend, she calls hospitality love embodied. For much of church history, hospitality was offered within a home or within a community of believers. In biblical times, welcoming the stranger was done individually and corporately, offering people food, shelter, safety. Christian hospitality looked out for the materially poor, for strangers, for those vulnerable, for those on the edges of society and not seen or overlooked by society at large. After the Middle Ages, with rising affluence, changes in households, church, and economies, 
hospitality became more professionalized. This gave rise to specialized institutions like hospitals, hospices, and inns. And increasingly, hospitality became synonymous with entertaining, a way of displaying wealth and reinforcing power and status. Today, we have a hospitality industry supporting travel and tourism. Hotels and restaurants are experienced in catering to the need of strangers, as long as you have money or credit cards. The moral compulsion and component of hospitality has largely gone away. And we Christians have largely bought into the cultural narrative which defines hospitality narrowly and almost exclusively as entertaining others. So let's drop in on one of the earliest stories of hospitality in the Bible found in Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15. Abraham settled his family under the sheltering oaks of Mamre in Judah in the modern-day West Bank of Israel. Here, Abraham was promised that his descendants would bless the nations and they'd be as numerous as the stars in the desert sky. Here, husband and wife waited for God to fulfill his promise. Now, Abraham was in his 90s and Sarah was in her 80s and both were still waiting. Both actually may have given up. There probably wasn't a lot happening in this rural location, but the text tells us that Abraham looks out from his tent and he spots three men in the distance nearby in the heat of day. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and he welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to you to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham, he shouts to his wife, Sarah, and they prepare food and drink. Abraham himself served the visitors in the shade of the trees. And as they dined, one of the visitors asked about Sarah. And Abraham said, she's inside the tent. Then one of the visitors says, I will return to you about this time next year and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah responds as any sensible, intelligent octogenarian would. She just, she just laughed out loud. Impossible, implausible. I, I can picture her saying the ancient equivalent expression of, dude, don't you know that the train has left this station a long time ago? How can this be? And as it turns out, these strangers welcomed as guests by Abraham and Sarah, become hosts, offering an early welcome to Abraham and Sarah as future parents-to-be. A year later, Isaac is born to his elderly parents who loved and treasured him. Gospel hospitality is radical hospitality. Here we see how hospitality is connected with the presence of God, with promise, and with blessing. As it was for Abraham and Sarah, it involves readiness, risk, repentance, and recognition. Abraham, he was ready to receive his guests. His heart was open. He was intentional and humble. God had welcomed him, so he was welcoming of strangers. Of course, there were risks involved. He could be rejected, and we all know, right, what it's like to be rejected by others. There was also a potential for physical danger, perhaps even a robbery, Three able-bodied male visitors and one elderly couple, not such good odds for a fight. 
And yet, as Abraham offered his invitation and welcomed the travelers, God, God was in it. Interestingly, whether we are host or guests, there's something for each of us. You get a chance to see the world differently through the eyes of another. Abraham and Sarah were living without a promised child. And the three men, they actually saw things differently. And they offered to this childless couple hope. Finally, Abraham recognized the three visitors as special guests. The first verse of this chapter 18 says, The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. Somehow, instead of seeing them as drifters, robbers, or potentially sketchy itinerant merchants, Abraham recognized them as special. And later in Hebrews 13, 2, we read, Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. So gospel hospitality is marked by this kind of seeing, this kind of seeing that goes beyond the superficial and allows you to see someone as Jesus himself sees him or her. And we all know what it's like to be overlooked, to be unseen, don't we? Well, I joined the predominantly male evangelical ministry ranks a few decades ago when women in ministry were rare and our present was frequently challenged theologically and socially. In this world, women of color were an endangered species. Once at an InterVarsity senior leadership meeting, the worship leader was leading and enthusiastically said as we were singing a hymn, Women on the Third Verse! Well, the four or five of us in the room of 50 guys looked at each other and we simply burst out laughing. Nah, these four or five women weren't going to warble out verse three by ourselves. I know what it's like to be overlooked and unseen, invisible, without power or voice. It's not fun. Yet the reason I've spent my entire working life in vocational Christian ministry is because God brought into my life people who did see me through God's eyes. They helped me work through my many insecurities, my clinical depressions, and my challenging family of origin. They gave me opportunities and challenges to develop my gifts, my leadership skills. They extended to me dignity and acceptance, even as they saw my need. They shared their lives with me. And through that, they helped me see the real me. As God sees me, beloved, honored, God's chosen daughters. Wow, what a life-changing gift from the people of God. And similarly, what a welcome we can offer when we accept the real person, seeing them through God's loving and merciful eyes. Well, I'd like us to continue by looking at two New Testament accounts. One shows Jesus in action at the home of a leader of the Pharisees, where people were watching him closely, probably to see if he was going to mess up. And Jesus, Jesus even tells the host who he should have invited to dinner. Kind of cheeky, you know? The other involves instructions about how to treat the strangers God brings to our attention. Both texts show how Jesus shaped a distinction between conventional and Christian hospitality. Let's turn first to Jesus attending a dinner party found in Luke 14. Here, we find him healing a sick man on a Sabbath, and then he finds the dinner guests all jostling to be seated near the head of the table, and he offers a suggestion. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Remember, Jesus is a dinner guest, and he has enough chutzpah to point this out. Then Jesus turns to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Ordinarily, hosts invite friends, relatives, and maybe those you want to network to get ahead, right? It's a chance to solidify relationships, reinforce social ties, repay past invitations, and expect future invitations to come your way. In contrast, Hosts who anticipated the hospitality of God's kingdom and were extending a gospel welcome, they would invite the poor, the lame, the crippled, and the blind, the groups of people who were more dependent on others and lived on the margins of a community. These hosts didn't expect to be paid back. They knew they were likely to experience inconvenience, have to address some special needs, and we're not likely to receive a reciprocal invitation of hospitality. God's hospitality exemplified in his welcome of us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, similarly frames our behavior towards people we may not yet know or those we find especially difficult to accept or welcome for whatever reason. Well, Jesus, he amps up the implications of hospitality in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. In this passage, Jesus personally and powerfully connects hospitality with our care for Jesus. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Acts of welcoming the stranger or leaving someone outside in the cold and, or hungry take on an intensely heightened significance when it's Jesus himself who is not welcomed or Jesus himself who's left outside. These, these are tough verses to apply, aren't they? They challenge us who profess to know Christ, to offer the most gracious gospel welcome possible. Whether the least of these refers to any person in need, to Christian missionaries and workers, to any Christian who is suffering at home in the hospital or in a displaced person's camp, the passage points out that the least of these, those who are the most readily overlooked and the most vulnerable of society, these, these are the people in need of care. When we extend gospel hospitality to these folk, it's as if we are ministering to Jesus himself. Prior to joining Grace Chapel staff, I ministered on university and colleges, college campuses for many moons. 
And while I was visiting a campus in Chicago, someone who was not a student joined our fellowship group, and he was a very faithful member. He was brilliant. He taught himself Ugaritic so he could help a friend who was learning this ancient and I would say obscure Semitic language. And he probably, he probably suffers from, from some form of mental illness. Because of his intensity and social awkwardness, he just, he wasn't easy to love. Well, some members of the fellowship got together and they came up with a care plan for him. They took turns taking him out to eat or inviting him to study with them. He was a good companion in limited doses. Sometimes I would see him chatting happily to one student. Another week, I would see him hanging out with a group of others. And he was a genuine part of the group and participated in our life together. It was a beautiful picture of gospel hospitality, giving this brother dignity, allowing him to be seen and appreciated for who he is, someone made in God's image. In turn, the members of the fellowship group learned to be a genuine Christian community. They extended themselves beyond their comfort zones and learned how to come alongside and show hospitality to someone they may not have ordinarily chosen to socialize with or get to know. Hospitality in the scripture comes from receiving God's welcome and generosity and then emulating his example. Why? Because we're grateful. Because we're grateful. We remember what it's like to not be seen, to, to be left out, to not be welcome. Remember, we remember how awful it is to be an outsider, to not be included, to not have friends or social relationships where we are included, valued, and seen. We remember what it feels like to not have enough, not enough food, shelter, work, and safety, not enough social relationships to allow us to flourish in our world. I kind of know what you may be thinking right now. This is all nice. I want to be more hospitable. I'm kind of persuaded, but there are so many obstacles. There's absolutely no way to add anything to my life right now. Time is a commodity we all have, and we all feel we don't have enough of. There's more to do than time to do it. There's risk involved in getting to know strangers who by definition are people I don't know yet. My house is a mess. I don't have a house or place of my own. I'm a rotten cook. I have 12 cats. I have three kids under six at home. My elderly relatives live with us. Yes, truth. There's no easy way for most of us to add anything to our lives right now. May I suggest that even more fundamental than our busy, overscheduled lives, the root obstacle may be our hearts. Do you and I want to make room in our hearts for others, for those outside our existing circle of family and friends? Is there room in your heart to offer a gospel welcome to some strangers? If if there's a little opening, if you're open for the challenge and are willing to take a risk to be blessed by God, may I suggest that you take a first step by participating in our winter warmers. These are casual one-time gatherings in people's homes for a simple meal or dessert. It's designed to gather folks who don't already know one another, and it's happening all across our campuses. We're looking for hosts now. And soon, we'll be giving you a chance to sign up to attend one. For some of us, hosting a winter warmer is the next step towards welcoming the strangers. For others of us, signing up to attend 
is the next step. Winter warmers are simple chance to open our hearts to others, to begin the journey of seeing someone through God's eyes, to help someone who may be invisible to others to be seen. Give it a go. It's one night. If it's a bust, you'll have great stories to share. If it's good or maybe even great, you'll have some new pals to sit with at church or on Sunday. A win-win, no? Hospitality has its risks and it has its rewards. At our dining tables, we all get to tell stories and share our lives. But welcome can have another dimension as we open ourselves up to new ideas, perspectives, and ideologies. When was the last time you listened to someone who has a strong opinion on a topic you know you disagree about? I'm a founding member of the Conflict Avoiders Club AAPI chapter. I can run faster from controversy than many Olympic sprinters. But you know, this club membership can mean I don't learn as much from others. Sometimes you just have to get in deep in order to learn and grow and change. Hospitality includes welcoming new ideas and perspectives. Sometimes being open to hearing and learning new to us theological perspectives is one of the toughest hills to climb for evangelical believers who value knowing the truth of our convictions. Hospitality also has a huge gospel witness dimension. When strangers are gathered, when unlikely people are laughing, sharing, serving each other, enjoying one another's company, fellowshipping, giving, talking, learning from each other, people take notice. This doesn't look normal. When the Soviet Union fell, there was an open door to set up some English language and cultural exchanges between Christian university students in America and university students in Russia and other former Soviet republics. InterVarsity jumped on the opportunity. Many of our student teams were ethnically diverse, Black, Latino, Asian American, and white. We looked like the rainbow. The students in Belarus were surprised to see the friendship and love of this ethnically diverse team. They loved one another. And this, in turn, sparked a curiosity, which brought many of the Russian-speaking students to participate in the voluntary Bible studies held each evening. Several turned from atheism to Jesus. Jean Vanier, founder of Loche, a group of communities in 37 countries for people with developmental disabilities and those who help them wrote, welcome is one of the signs that a community is alive. To invite others to live with us is a sign that we aren't afraid, that we have a treasure of truth and of peace to share. A community which refuses to welcome, whether through fear, weariness, insecurity, a desire to cling to comfort, or just because it is fed up with visitors, is dying spiritually. Finally, there's a social dimension to hospitality and welcome. Your kind introduction. You're noticing someone who is not being seen. You're putting in a good word for someone when everyone else is piling on the negative comments. This can be a kind of gospel welcome that is a difference maker for a group or for an individual. And this social dimension of hospitality isn't limited to individuals. It can be extended corporately. How? How are we going to welcome the stranger at our southern border? What does it take to help make our laws be more just 
so that the invisible, vulnerable ones living on the margins of our society are seen and valued as people created in God's image. How about those experiencing homelessness in our commonwealth right now? What about the undocumented workers who cut our lawns, plow our snow, and wash dishes in our favorite restaurants? What does the Bible, what does biblical hospitality look like when it's extended to those strangers and the least among us? YWAM, a ministry partner of Grace Chapel, has a foundational ministry value of practicing hospitality. YWAM affirms the ministry of hospitality as an expression of God's character and the value of people. We believe it's important to open our hearts, homes, YWAM locations and campuses to serve and honor one another, our guests and the poor and the needy, not as acts of social protocol, but as expressions of generosity. What would happen if Grace Chapel as a church community moved from insecurity and privacy to a biblically-rooted, gospel-welcoming hospitality? I spoke earlier about the plain people and the outlandish, generous welcome they received from the Ganderites during 9-11. One of these plain people wrote an article in the Washington Post about her experience 20 years later, and she said, to all those who helped us and opened their homes and hearts to us, thank you is not enough. Two decades later, I'd like them to know one thing. I have always tried to be a little more like you. Oh, oh that the people who meet you and me and the Grace Chapel community today would see us as Jesus' people. Oh, that they would want to be a little more like us because we reflect the life, values, and character of Jesus our Lord. Oh, that they would like to know that we are his disciples because they can see how we love one another. Let's pray. We're grateful for the welcome you've offered us and embodied for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we continue to open our hearts to strangers you've brought into our awareness so that they may share the generous and loving welcome of Christ with them. Heal our sight so that we may see people as you do. Help us to make time and space for the least among us so that we, like Abraham and Sarah, may be surprised that we've extended love and tangible care to angels unaware. Hear our gratitude this day, we pray. Amen.